The Hello Careers podcast explores a system developed to align business needs with education and training. It's proven to be invaluable for dozens of businesses and people looking to create a new life for themselves. We are firm believers that you must screen for attitude and train for aptitude. We're unpacking our insight to help you build partnerships and earn public support for an age-old way of learning a skill, apprenticeship. We'll address issues such as where there's a skills gap, is there an education and training gap? How do you respond to a tight labor market? What happens when the major employer pulls out of your community? If you're looking to create an apprenticeship program or curious about what to do next, this show could be just the thing you've been looking for. I'm your host, Mark Sylvester. Now, let's get started and talk with the team. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I'm Mark with um, Hello Careers. And on our final episode of season two, we've talked to a lot of really interesting people and got a full spectrum of how this program works with small organizations and large organizations. And we've listened to lots of different voices about how things are working. And what I'd like to do for this last episode to kind of put a button on all of that is to talk about what's next and let's celebrate some of the successes we have. But before we do that, Michael, I'd love you to reintroduce who our guests are today. Michael Spicurla, Executive Director of Slow Partners, and we have with us Luke Wallace, who's sort of our operations specialist, and we also have Amy Cardell from CompTIA. Welcome to the show. Amy, um, tell me, how is it you've gotten involved uh, with the Hello Careers program and with Slow Partners? So CompTIA is the Computer Trade Industry Association. We're the global leader in workforce training in IT. We certify workforce in IT around the world. And I happen to be a native of San Luis Obispo. So my work with Slow Partners has been local and global at the same time, looking at how apprenticeship can be really, for me, in a way, a test kitchen right here in San Luis Obispo. So uh, you get to bring a different uh, lens to this in you see programs all over the world is there anybody doing what Slow Partners is doing elsewhere in the world? There are, and there's an infinite variation on the theme here. Um, I think what we're doing is pretty special locally, and when you compare it to the domestic U.S. Um, market, we're been, we've been very successful locally. The number of placements we have is is really impressive given the small market we're in and um, the uptake in the community. And I think that goes back to a key thing in life, trust and relationships. You know, we really have a tightly integrated community here and anyone trying to implement this elsewhere should really look at who are your partners in doing that. And, um, you know, when an apprentice approaches a program, they have to really want to, to give their time and effort and energy and trust someone. And a lot of people have been burned by schools or burned by programs. And um, who can you trust to move forward uh, with your training and your career and your livelihood? You know, you really need a good reputation. And, and that's really something Slow Partners has with all of the employers who came to the table early where people go, that's my neighbor. They're telling me this is going to lead to a comp- job at their company. This won't be something that will this will work. This will work. And that I can trust. And I think when you look at bigger cities, we see a problem with trust. So we're trying to partner when we do these things in bigger cities with bigger name brands, with government, with foundations that have a good reputation, because that's an issue. Trust is at the foundation of someone wanting to enroll in a program and for employers as well on the uptake side. 
And Luke, um, one of the things uh, I, I'm curious with uh, with your take on the partnership you have with this global organization, because there, where this is a small community, right? We've forty thousand people. The you know, as you said on earlier episodes, there's the set of entrepreneurs, and then the set of tech entrepreneurs is even smaller, and then the amount of people is even smaller still. What are the advantages? What have the advantages been in partnering with Comptia? You know, I think. As with any kind of new launch of a new program, a new idea, anytime you can have an established organization that can lend credibility to something like this, and just as, as Amy was talking about trust, for a employer or even a candidate to uh, be willing to try something new, if you can have a logo that's connected to a brand that has uh, equity and trust in the market, it it lends the it gives the ability to for somebody to take a leap and try something new. And I think you know as we were talking about the idea of trust and as it relates to our program, I think one of the big reasons why we've been able to be successful and gain more and more trust over time is that we really have considered ourselves a startup more than anything else. And the the constant with startups is always change and evolution and iteration. And we haven't tried to be prescriptive or, you know, super strict in how we've done things. We've been very adaptable and we've responded to feedback both from our candidates as well as from our employers so that each cohort, hopefully we get better and better and provide and create more value for everybody participating in the program. When I I think of trust, I think that the people who trusted you in the early days, Michael, when you went for that grant and you said, listen, there's this big hole and here's a way to solve this problem. We're going back a couple of years now and they had trust in you and and now look at what has been built this. What are we three years in? This is the beginning of the third year. Yeah. Beginning of the third year. And I really think, you know, the County Office of Education also took a risk, but also added that element of trust to the community because we have a superintendent-elect, so there's a, a there's transparency and accountability there. And then the fact that the County Office of Education was willing to put resources to piloting and testing this kind of a program was really helpful. So we were able to do, to act locally, to work with our local business partners, but Amy allowed us to, and really challenged us to think globally about how this could um, really scale and become something bigger than just the local solution to our problems. Because if it can work in slow, it should be able to work other places. In fact, it should be easier other places. We have a lot of headwinds here in some ways, right, with a smaller community. I mean, trust is easier in a smaller community, I think, in a lot of ways, because we see each other at the beach walking our dog recently just by mm-hmm. chance or, you know, on the soccer field with our friends and in the business community, we've known each other for years. There's just a million points of overlap. But the um, the key thing is that I think you're right back to the County Office of Education. You know, uh, Dr. Brescia is saying, I'm willing to take this leap of faith and with a really good plan. It looks really solid. And then that elected position behind that, I think, really gives it credibility and people um, can rally around that. I think that that's a key piece of leadership that was shown by this office, and I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by that. 
And there's always been a notion behind everything that this program has done and every time it's promoted itself of the why behind what we are doing. And there is there are dynamics in this community that are challenging, both for community members trying to level up their skills and find new opportunities and enter new career paths, as well as employers trying to, you know, t- address this tight labor market and find talent and grow. Um, and and by, you know, really kind of walking all those lines and understanding the why, it has directed the ultimate strategy and tactics that have uh, gotten us to where we are. I'm, I'm reminded, Michael, that uh, at the beginning and even in an earlier episode in this season, you talked about this being an ed tech startup and how, and it's so analogous to the businesses you're serving, these small startups, right, that you're kind of doing the same thing. Like you have all the same challenges, how you grow, how you scale, how you partner, how you promote, all of those kinds of things. So as we're talking about the future, it seems to me as an outside observer that uh, a logical, very interesting opportunity would be, is there a, a, let's say, I'll call it a council of uh, organizations that have done these, as you said, apprenticeship programs, there there are many of them. Do they get together on at some regular basis to share best practices? Because I know part of the mandate that we talked about before season one, and one of the impetus for this whole show, was we got to codify this and put it out there so other organizations can use this as a a roadmap to how they implement it. So it feels like there's a natural synergy to go talk to other guys like yourself, Michael. So in California, um, the governor set up an interagency council on apprenticeship um, to address just that, that there's two sides to apprenticeship in California. There There are the traditional building trades apprenticeships, and they maintain their existing structure and meeting schedule. And then what was set up just this last January was an interagency. And there are different subdivisions of that. And I sit on the committee for technology apprenticeships. And uh, it, it's important that there be those regular committees to share those best practices and also figure out what's the system of support. Because both Governor Brown and Governor Newsom have both put out a challenge of they'd like to see 500,000 apprentices. That's an audacious goal. It's a, it's a moonshot. How you're going to get there really speaks to how do we scale this? What's the system? What's the operations? What's the event horizon on that 500,000? They haven't quite put a, a date on it yet, though. It's a big goal, that's for sure. And when we look at modern apprenticeship, that's something else I really want to touch on. I think when we communicate um, what apprenticeship is about, most people have such an outdated concept. I mean, if you're at show eight here with us, you've you've, you've already we're probably preaching to the choir. But um, you know that vision to expand to that number, obviously. It's going to require mind shift to modern apprenticeship outside the trades. And this isn't just being looked at in California. Domestically, the Department of Labor is very focused at the Office of Apprenticeship on what can be done with industry-recognized apprenticeships and registered apprenticeships. And I've been on a committee there nationally where we were looking at what's happening. And what we found is a lot of businesses are doing things like apprenticeship but not calling it apprenticeship. And if they were to call it apprenticeship, they unlock a lot of other benefits for their company as well as the apprentice. And so I think there'll be a shift toward that in the future. Um, we're, we're getting to the point where it feels to me like a wave is cresting. 
What, what evidence or give me an example of that wave? An example of people doing things that aren't apprenticeship that are apprenticeship-like are companies with training programs and recruiting programs that bring in uh, work candidates and go through a training program, but they just don't call it an apprenticeship, right? So if they were to go through the trouble which isn't too bad if you have a great partner, of registering your apprenticeship, they would unlock housing benefits for veterans. They would unlock um, funding dollars for themselves as an employer. They would have a structure to which they could um, have a repeatable process for other companies. I think that's really a key piece and a, and a pooled risk uh, in a sense that they're all looking at the same standards. So the national guideline standards, national program standards are available for some occupations already from the Department of Labor if you go to their website. I think it's similar to the concept of any complex, you know, government or policy initiative where if you ask people about the specific components of any kind of initiative similar to this, if you ask them about the idea of, you know, recruiting junior people that were enthusiastic but didn't have experience and combining them with some outside education and an internal mentor and putting an infrastructure around them to help make them successful, all of that makes sense intuitively. But when you say the word apprenticeship, people don't necessarily connect all of those dots yet, especially as it relates to more technical and modern and white-collar professions. So I think that that education gap of the kind of players understanding what apprenticeship really means and what it can do for them uh, is, is, is one of the bigger hurdles to achieving those, you know, moonshot milestones that are out there. So as we're talking about the future, uh, part of that is uh, sounds like an education program to go from, as we've said in earlier shows, that blacksmith model, uh, you know, that that hard pounding iron having that vision of an apprentice to this more modern apprenticeship. And in fact, even inside of tech, which we, as you've said, um, Amy, that uh, they don't identify it as that. So there is an opportunity for us then on the education side. I want to shift over to an idea that we talked about in terms of things you're looking at going forward, because this is about looking to the future. And you brought up a concept that I'd love you to explain. It's called rural sourcing. Tell me what that is. Well, rural sourcing is the idea that you don't, geography is agnostic for most com companies. That if you have a remote intact team that's doing processes and work procedures that are established, those teams have been shown to be as effective, if not more effective, than a in-place team at a, a specific physical location. Obviously, if you've got, you know, a new initiative and establishing new procedures and processes, you want that team to have face-to-face -face meetings. But this idea of remote teams, people coming from anywhere, different time zones, working together on similar projects, most companies have embraced that, especially larger global companies, that they recognize that you have team members that are in different time zones coming together to, you know, so the, where I heard the difference in that was, um, so I'm, I'm used to singular remote 
engineers working someplace, but this is remote teams. Isn't that great? Isn't that an interesting idea? So when you think about that, you know, one of the things people like about work is a sense of cooperation and a sense of place. And, you know, the Bay Area is such a hard place to live, just for example, given housing prices, traffic, you know, schools, all the expenses are much higher there than they are in our county, for example, in San Luis Obispo. So why not locate a remote team here? Four-hour drive away, you can have a co-working space where four or five people get together, and they are a team that's remote to that San Francisco Bay Area team. And if they need to go up once a quarter, once a month, yeah, it can totally be done. But to have that rural outsourcing, in a sense, you know, where they are living and working here four hours away to a, a major tech center. Um, that's a that's a model that's do, doable across the country. We're seeing that also interesting on the um, East Coast, too, because there's a lot of places where, yeah, it's really, you know, Boston's really impacted, San Francisco's really impacted. So people love the quality of life that can be offered by living more rurally, right? They love the lower housing costs. They love the fact they can go mountain biking or surfing, whatever their thing, skiing is, whatever it is. But to to combine that with the ability to work from in a meaningful job, um, and do that remotely as part of a team. That's what rural sourcing can be. So then that makes me think of onshoring. And rather than uh, sending projects offshore. Absolutely. Right. Bring them onshore. Right. And are you seeing that as a trend as a result of these programs? We're seeing this as a micro trend. I think we'll see more of it. If I had to put my goggles on, I think we'd see even more of it coming. Well, this show, we get to do that. Yeah. We have, we have my a future cr- goggles. crystal ball yeah. right here. So, um, and, and why is that, I mean, why is that important to that small business or that large business? How, how do you make that pitch to them? Well, I think coming from industry, what's important to me and what we see important to our members at CompTIA is that they have the adequate skills, right? So they've been certified, they've passed their exams, A plus, Network plus, Security plus, they're completely qualified and they're integrated with us in their values, but they're, and they're productive. To us, a lot of companies don't matter where you are as much as the fact that you can do that job. And I think in selling rural sourcing, it's really about talent. I mean, we, our research shows that there's, you know, 2 million jobs in the U.S. unfilled. So the the need is there, the business case is there, and the idea of providing this linkage um, through apprentices and rural sourcing is, is absolutely viable. And I think there's a couple of gaps that are over time going to have to be filled. One is that uh, I think there's still a stigma in, in a lot of uh, hiring managers' minds about remote workforce and and the idea that, you know, if they're working from home or even working, you know, in a small team somewhere else, that they're just not going to be as productive as if they were in our building. But then the other side of that coin is that I, as an organization, can't grow because I can't hire, because I can't find talent. So there's got to be some kind of trade-off where you're willing to give people a certain amount of autonomy and a certain amount of rope in order to work remote so that you can grow because the alternative is just waiting for this talent to fall out of the sky in your locality. And that just doesn't necessarily always happen on the time frame that you need it to in order to fulfill your business goals. And, you know, We've got 
Our apprentices that are going through the remote full-stack academy, they're getting practice in how to work remotely in Teams because the instruction is being delivered through online medium, and they're already practicing and learning how to collaborate through remote Teams. So that gives us an advantage in placing and getting rural sourcing and hired graduates that way. And if I can piggyback on that as well, tech companies really want to see diversity in their workforce, women, minorities, other able people, and a lot of that's available if you have this option open. And just demographically, you know, um, you think about um, working remotely is such a blessing to someone who has limited mobility, right? Different ways of getting to work. If you can work online, you don't have to get in your car or with a wheelchair maybe, and all that stuff is can be more flexible. So I think, you know, if you're looking to increase diversity, you have an advantage with this as well. So I want to shift over to how we measure the effectiveness of this. So let's let's look back now. We're beginning our third year in season one. We were able to look back a year. You had set some goals for yourself, and uh, and I know you have to report because there's a reporting contingent to this whole thing. How have you done on meeting those numbers? That's the first one. But then what kind of goals have you set for yourself for the next year? So for the grant, it was about how many registered apprentices you get. But when you look at registered apprentices, that means how many people were hired in a well-paying job. And so what's the wages that they got at the start of that job and then at the end of that job? So really, we've invested some time into really tracking those kinds of metrics and We've, I think we're up to, because um, it's an ongoing number, um, we're at 70 apprentices that have been registered. Um, we've completed our first two groups of apprentices. So I believe we have 30 completed registered apprentices. And the wages range from the early entry wage jobs in IT help desk of $15 an hour to $18 an hour to some of our software developers being hired between $25 and $30 an hour. So we've got some good numbers here of, you know, good hiring, good hiring numbers, good um, wage numbers, as well as people uh, keeping those jobs after their one year of apprenticeship. And beyond, you know, the, the people that, went through one of our training programs and got hired and got registered as an apprentice directly through our through us, there was also another subset of people that went through our training programs, maybe didn't get hired initially while we were still engaged with them and going through the registration process. But we do hear anecdotally all the time about somebody that went through one of our programs six months, a year ago, a year and a half ago, that is now in the field and didn't necessarily come through our pipeline. So they aren't counted in our, you know, 70 uh, registrations, but we are affecting Anybody that goes through our program is gaining skills and hopefully finding their path eventually, even if it isn't immediately. So knowing that you're still building this organization and figuring out where and how to scale and all of that, 70 is a far cry from the 500,000. So what's it going to—let's just take the number to 1,000. How do we get from 70 to 1,000? I think the first step is really building our organizational muscle and systems to have this repeatable ongoing 
process that is sustainable both from an operational efficiency standpoint as well as a business and funding model uh, standpoint. And that's really what our focus is now is how do we get ourselves into a rhythm where we are effectively doing a cohort per quarter on an ongoing basis. And eventually, as we build that muscle and build that rhythm and cadence, we can scale that so that the cohorts get bigger, we're adding more cohorts, and over time, we're scaling as an organization. Sounds like a startup. We have a minimum viable product here, right? <laughs> exactly. No, it is exactly like a startup, right? That's exactly the, that's exactly the point. Um, in these shows, we've heard lots of great successes, like all the things that are working right. But I want to kind of dig into what do you see as the leader, Michael, as the challenges that you have that are, you know, let's talk about them just for a few minutes. What are, what are the big obstacles you see to that? Well, I think it's consistently understanding what the local demand is. If we don't know what our customers need and what their demands are, there's no way that we can plan and create a system for that. So it's that ongoing understanding from the businesses and trust, as Amy said, that they're willing to share with us what, what are their needs, what are their talent needs, and that we can provide a solution to that need. So it feels like that that's a corner that's foundational for you guys. So we've heard that over and over that we're going to, what's the secret to success in business? Ask people what they want, then give it to them, right? That's the easy one. So you're doing that, but is there a challenge to that? Is there like getting to these businesses, getting them to talk to you, getting, you know, getting FaceTime with them? Time is always an essence, you know, a business time is everything. Um, I think it goes to what Amy was saying. It's that trust relationship that they're willing to give us that time because they know that we're going to listen and be able to act upon what those needs are. I think you're right. It, um, you know, employers also have to have new trust built. They've been involved in lots of programs over the years that maybe didn't lead to something through various avenues and not to point fingers, but there's been a lot of attempts by education to engage and have communication across what do we need with advisory boards. And it seems like everybody gets together once a year, has a bad sandwich, goes home and does what they were going to do anyway. <laughs> um, and that that's felt by the business community. I've felt it. And, um, you know, that shift is hard to make. We, we speak different languages in industry than we do in education. And so that's part of slowing down, having a meaningful process, engaging and delivering upon what the customer really wants. Because at the end of the day, the business is the customer. This, right? And I think that the evolution is trust ultimately leads to reputation, right? So we've had these, you know, first few groups of employers that have, have taken the leap and given us their, um, you know, their trust and tried this program. But now we're starting to have more reputation and brand equity in the community and beyond where employers that were maybe sitting on the sidelines waiting to see if this whole thing actually yielded fruit uh, are seeing the value and they're seeing their competitors who hired an apprentice or two uh, that are growing. So ultimately, you know, we hope that as we perform on an ongoing basis, on a repeating basis, that more and more people come into the fray, more and more employers create opportunities. It feels like there's a, an opportunity to 
bring some of the first year people out into the public, uh, going to chambers of commerce, going to tech mixers, going to things like that, where you can, um, I was instantly thinking of uh, crossing the chasm and we're going from, you know, our early adopters as we, you've correctly identified to that early majority, right? Which is, feels like that's your next swath. That's your next market. Is that right, Luke? I would, I would totally agree. And I think that you're absolutely right about telling the stories of both the employers as well as the candidates who have participated in these programs. We have the the benefit of this being a very, you know, human uh, involvement, a human process where we can tell the story of not only how the employers were able to find talent and grow, but how these individuals were able to find career paths and start to generate head of household income and how that affects their entire world. Stories right now, brand stories, organizational stories are, we've been telling stories for 40,000 years ever since we figured out campfires were a great place to tell them. Uh, and and now there's a real renaissance in that. And it feels like that's another one of your secret weapons is you've got people who are very motivated on both sides of that supply and demand curve uh, to go out and tell that story and to be thankful. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, reciprocation here, if you will. I, I remember uh, you had us on a panel uh, last year, and we had one of the apprentices there, and I was so moved in listening to him say that uh, the biggest thrill for him was sitting on the couch with his buddies who were playing video games. He was thinking, I've got a career and you guys have jobs. He said it something like that. And I was just like, oh, and he, he his sense of self-worth, right? Because we want to feel significant, right? We want to be recognized and we want to feel significant. And this actually gives them that sense of significance because they're not getting a job. They're working into a career. Yeah. As you said, future careers locally grown. Yeah, it's really true. It helps people overcome a confidence gap. We see that all the time with this. And I think employers too, because they're looking for a way to viably fill repeatably openings in their business and to feel like, oh yeah, we have a process. It's called apprenticeship. That right. for a business owner is like, oh, what a relief. Well, business is good now, right? Businesses are growing. We need more people. Yep. And we need businesses talking to other businesses. That's that's your stronger story, that a businessman or woman talking to another business person about how this worked for them and how it was effective, that's the way the brand is developed. In the same way that an apprentice being able to tell their hero's journey of how they found a new career and launched their new career, that's what's going to bring true diversity to the tech industry. Uh, that's the button right there. I want to end it right there. I love that on the hero's journey, right? Because that the hero comes back after that, that. That's the trick. The hero comes back to the community and shares the lessons learned. So let's go find some heroes. So, Michael, congratulations. Um, and to a successful now end of season two of the Hello Career Show. Luke, welcome 
to the program. And Amy, I'm glad you're here guiding and keeping all these characters in place. And thank you so much. And if you are uh, an employer or you have heard about this show, check us out. Where can they get more information and contact you if they, maybe they don't live in the area, they're in the, the Midwest and they're saying, God, that sounds so good. I'm finally going to go do that program. Check us out on hellocareers.org or slowpartners.org, S-L-O partners.org, San Luis Obispo, California. Perfect. Michael, Luke, Amy, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. How will you bring this system to your community and say hello to new careers and goodbye to low-wage jobs? For more episodes, visit hellocareers.org or send us a note to podcast at hellocareers.org. We'd love to hear from you with questions or success stories of how apprenticeship is working in your region. Till next time, I'm Mark Sylvester with Hello Careers.